a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a rock. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very good. Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we got the honor to sit down with the great and powerful David Warner Matheson. He is an author who has been exploring the connections between the ancient myths and the stars for a very long time now. Uh, some of his books, uh, just to name a couple guys, are Astrology for Life, uh, The Undying Stars, The Ancient Worldwide System, all of which will be linked down in the show notes so that you guys can explore his work further. Uh, for the audio-only audience, just a heads up that there is a bit of a visual presentation that goes along with this. So if you'd like, uh, check the show notes for expandingrealitypodcast.com. The video will be over there or on YouTube. Either way is fine. Uh, also check Rockfin. Uh, it'll be up there too. So go check out Rockfin for premium content and all that good stuff. And check out the show notes for all the ways to expand your experience with us here on the show. So uh, without any further ado, let's just get right to this amazing conversation with David Warner Matheson. All right, everybody, welcoming to the show. It is the great and powerful David Warner Matheson. I am extremely excited about this conversation. I uh, got your information, and of course, I heard you ahead of time on How to Kill a Sacred Cow podcast with our mutual friend Jay Hennehan, which you guys did an awesome job, and you were nerding out on vases and Pan's penis in one of them. And I was just fascinated uh, by the conversation. And of course, you're an incredible author. All the ways to find you uh, and your books as well will be linked in the show notes. So guys, please feel free to research uh, David further. He is fascinating and I cannot wait to get into this with you, brother. So uh, for my audience that's not too familiar with you, do you mind just uh, letting us know a little bit about yourself and then we'll launch into it, bro. Thanks a lot, Brandon. I appreciate it. It's great to be here on Expanding Reality and, you know, congratulations on your show and thank you for the invite. I'm really glad that Jay introduced us and um, I've been researching the connection between the stars and the myths for really over 12 years now. And it is not necessarily something that I was looking for. I've always loved the myths since I was a child and I did have the opportunity to go back. I went to the military academy at West Point, and I did have the opportunity to go back and teach there and had an opportunity, wonderful opportunity to teach the Odyssey, which is one of my favorite ancient sagas, epics from ancient Greece. And uh, I always loved the stars as well. So I grew up going out to see the stars. My father, you know, got me books on the constellations and he would take me out outside to see the stars and we, we even tried to see Halley's comet when it came through um back in the 70s i don't think we were too successful in seeing it, it was like a little smudge or something but uh <laughs> but we would go out and look at the stars anyway long story short i did not really stumble across 
the arguments that the myths and the stars are connected until after I'd gotten out of the army, after I had already taught at West Point. And I was, I got a book actually for my mother. My mother and father were going on a trip to Machu Picchu and I was looking for a book like that had Machu Picchu in it. And I found a book by Graham Hancock and his wife, Santa Faya called Heaven's Mirror, which is a wonderful book with lots of really beautiful, glossy photographs, many of, you know, one whole sections on Machu Picchu, but it mentions the connection to the stars of these ancient monuments around the world. It goes into some incredible connections uh, in the sites in the deep, middle of the Pacific in the South Pacific um, and also Egypt and, you know, places that are maybe more familiar and also of course Machu Picchu, but in that book. So <laughs> I gave that book to my mother and then I was like, I'm going to look into this Graham Hancock. He seems really interesting. He mentions in their Hamlet's mill and in some, um, then I bought some of his other books and read about, and he mentions Hamlet's mill, which is a book published in 1969. And I bought that book and they talk about this ancient, worldwide system that was already so ancient was already gathering dust you know the layers of dust were already thick on it by the time the ancient greeks came on the scene that's one of their you know metaphors that they use right at the beginning and it connects cultures around the globe in the americas of course these were both professors when they wrote it Herta von Decken and Giorgio de Santillana, but they were, it's, that whole theory or thesis has been mocked and ridiculed and not accepted by academia. Uh, but it was published in 1969. Anyway, connections between the myths and the stars, I already loved both of those things. So I became kind of like the obsessed guy with the strings, you know, the, the red yarn going everywhere, trying to figure out, because they didn't really get it completely. They saw, I give them all the credit for seeing the evidence, but they weren't able to really unlock the vocabulary of what's going on between the myths and the stars. So just one other piece of that story, and then I'll stop with this long, already long introduction, was they were talking about the connection between the Greek myths and the stars, the myths of ancient Egypt and the stars, the myths of ancient India and the stars. And I was fascinated by all that, but every now and then they would talk about the connection between the Bible stories in the stars. And I was like, uh, no, you know, <laughs> wrong, different category, because I was taking the Bible literally, very pretty devoutly, actually, um, became actually more and more into it when I got into the army. It wasn't like some a childhood upbringing was kind of general, go to church sometimes, not specific, you know, not really strictly you know, I grew up in California. It wasn't what you would call the Bible Belt, right? Um, but in the Army, I became progressively more and more into uh, more and more severe, basically, forms of Christianity to where eventually, by the time I was getting my master's degree at Texas A&M, I was not reading any secular literature on a Sunday. I wasn't watching any football on a Sunday. No, you know, nothing, just the Bible or commentaries on the Bible. And that's why I was getting a master's degree in English literature, where there was a ton of reading and essays to write. And I wouldn't do any of that on a Sunday. So anyway, long story short, I rejected that part, but the evidence is really overwhelming. Once I really started to dig in and pull on that thread, there is no doubt that all the world's myths are connected by some common 
system, very, very ancient, predating ancient Egypt, predating ancient Mesopotamia, predating ancient India, because they all have this system fully developed in their most ancient texts around the world. And it's also in the Americas and it's also in the islands of the Pacific. It's also in Asia, the ancient sacred stories of China, Japan, other parts of Asia. Uh, and I've, I've written about some of that, but there's just so much evidence. You can't write about all of it. It's just overwhelming amount of evidence. I could not agree more. Uh, to unpack a couple things, first of all, thank you for your service. I have a high reverence for folks that choose to go into the military. I don't always agree with the lizard people's wars, but I definitely uh, have a high reverence for that. So first of all, bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, secondly, your intro is perfect because you're a fascinating guy and you set it up and you um, are already uh, journeying up a bunch of questions for you. Uh, one of which would be, I, I do agree with you and I love Hancock's work on how he connects the ancient cultures and there does seem to be some huge missing piece as far as history goes. And we talk a lot on this show about alternative history, about um, things that are presented to you in the reality may not necessarily be 100% accurate, and they might even possibly be a direct indication of the inverse of reality and what's really going on, kind of as a uh, either a puzzle to find out on a fun cosmic level. It depends on, again, what you believe this reality is and what your constitution is, what you're here for. Uh, but another way uh, would be pretty nefarious for a control end. And then they you know, hide actual history and your true power and the true nature of reality from you because it's the best way to keep you in the great deception, which is kind of what uh, this time period has been referred to as as well. And uh, then the uh, heavens mirroring the stars um, or the stars mirroring the monoliths that are found on the ground. Again, uh, Cambodia, Teotihuacan, you've got Egypt, you have all of these places across some interesting meridian lines uh, that have reverence for not even the stars, but specific constellations in specific ways that are identical. And so this does denote a fabric or a template that everyone seems to be on board with, but then they just kind of put their own twist on it. You know, they call it Quetzalcoatl over here, but it's, you know, Osiris over there. It's very, very interesting. Uh, so... Whenever you walked down this path, um, it's interesting also that you weren't raised specifically, uh, we'll, we'll say, in the doctrine of Christianity to a hard level and then found it later. I've got this theory that you always just kind of do the opposite or you kind of gravitate towards what you weren't raised with simply because now it's not something you were told. It's a discovery that you made. And whatever that is. And if you want to go real deep with this, I don't know how much, you know, how deep you want to go, but it could be something on a spiritual level to where it's like, okay, well, you're going to need to know Christianity. So we're going to raise you in a house of witches. And then you're going to rebel against that because that's a natural order of things. And then you step into your Christianity and then uh, you have a you have a stronger investment in that idea because it's something you figured out. It's not something that somebody kind of laid out for you. Right. And uh, I think this is interesting. So uh, would you, before we move on, cause you've got an awesome presentation. I can't wait to get to, I uh, just, again, have so many questions for you. I, uh, would you um, consider yourself still to this day a uh, Christian? No, 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 not in the sense that anybody um, generally means when they say that word. Um, so literalist Christianity is um, taking these ancient scriptures, which are part of the ancient wisdom of the different cultures, given all this ancient wisdom, I am convinced that the ancient wisdom preserved in these myths has as its purpose a beneficial purpose. So you alluded to a little bit about, you know, there, there are different theories. And I'll say right off the bat that what I can prove, 
what I can show, what I'm most confident about is that the stories, the characters and the events can be seen in the constellations beyond doubt. And it's the same system operating around the world, which is impossible to explain within the rigid conventional orthodox paradigm of history that's taught in academia to this day, very you know, rigidly enforced. If I were to walk in and say, hi, I'd like to be a professor. I've discovered all these uh, connections around the world. And by the way, it's the same uh, system that's operating in Mesopotamia as is operating in the stories of the Maya and the sacred stories of the nations of North America. They would say, you know, get out and don't let the door hit you on the way out because (laughs) that doesn't fit our paradigm. You're talking nonsense because it doesn't fit our paradigm. Well, your paradigm is so radically flawed i mean it's gravely flawed that it needs to be retired and radical revision is necessary for the timeline of human history but to answer your question the literal texts of the bible are actually beautiful when you understand that they're esoteric and that they're full of truth and beauty and that is what attracts people to them and to you know, I, I love your questions and, you know, you're, you said a whole lot in that uh, little bit. <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to address all of the pieces, but I also am quite convinced that they are talking about trauma. They are talking about trauma as it's understood by basically cutting edge healers. It's not even these cutting edge healers like Dr. Gabor Mate or uh, Dr. Peter Levine, maybe I'll have an opportunity to reference them a little bit later, but they're not by no means, you know, when you listen to them talk, they say, basically, this is not what I was taught in medical school. You know, in fact, some of the things that I've discovered go completely against some of the um, conventional or widely accepted understandings of depression, addiction, and, you know, actually those things are signs of trauma psychological trauma, not necessarily physical trauma. Some, uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Schwartz, who I respect a lot and use, uh, and, you know, discovering his system, to me, it matches right in with what the myths are talking about. He calls it attachment injury. There's a category of, of psychological trauma, but it separates you from yourself. So I would argue that this kind of intense searching and getting more and more severely into Christianity that I was doing may indicate some things about what I was looking for. What you're looking for is yourself. That's what you're, and people might say, what, you know, don't start talking about it. you know, so that's actually a defense mechanism. (laughs) You might want to investigate that, that voice that's saying that um, because it's threatening to the parts of you that are trying to kind of control the ship they're doing the best they can and they've suppressed that true part of you for a defensive reason because of something that basically is endemic to getting integrated into society it's not that your parents were bad people in 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 most cases it's the fact that society uh lays all these things and that's why the myths are there is to actually explain to you that this has happened they show it in pictures and then they show you how to fix it so i believe that it's all about actually truth and beauty and so people who are pursuing the bible 
are actually pursuing something good. And those stories resonate with them because they are full of truth and beauty. But the literalist misinterpretation is where all the bad parts come in. When you understand that they're not literal, you don't throw out, the, I, I believe the Bible is beautiful. And those stories are tremendously enlightening and beneficial. Just as much as when I took them literally. But some people get very threatened when you say they're not literal. They say, what do you mean? They're not true? No, I didn't say that. I said they're not literal history. They're full of profound truth. But no, literalist Christianity has layered on some other things. Well, we're exclusively right. And all the, you know, we can go to Taiwan and convert those people there because they're still, you know, living in the darkness of their traditional religions that, you know, or superstitions that have been passed down to them, you know, these condescending terms, and we have to bring them over to the light of the correct understanding. Guess what? Your stories are based on the exact same system as their stories, as it's all part of one system around the world that somehow there was some kind of trauma <laughs> that was probably global that splintered this all up and, and uh, caused it all to be forgotten. So Graham Hancock says we're a species with amnesia. I don't know if he's the first one to say that, but I agree with him. And we might even say trauma-induced amnesia. Yeah, and depending on again your your worldview, I think that we're gods with amnesia. I think that we're um, we just have forgotten our true nature and power, and we're here to just kind of figure it out and discover it through really interesting concepts. But again, through the thickness of a great deception that's been deliberately pulled over your eyes. Right? It's the Morpheus thing. It's the world that's been pulled over your eyes to shield you from the truth. Um, and it seems like the with with concepts like the Bible and with ancient texts, I, I agree with you that there's a ton of wisdom in there. I've I've made the comparison um, a few times that it's kind of like in our very far future, if all of humanity has been destroyed, and then uh, there's like a couple people that went under ground and then they survived and came out and they found a Spider-Man comic book or like all of the Spider-Man comic books. And instead of taking them as, you know, uh, the, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And there's a lot of cool things in there that you can apply to your real life. But thinking that a man swings around with, you know, yarn coming from his hands and then a guy named Dr. Octopus is going to come destroy you. And then fearing that that's an actual thing that's going to happen are two different things. And I think that whenever we gain a little bit more wisdom over the ancient texts and what they're really saying and stop, like you said, only looking at them through the light of literalism, then yes, you get a lot of really interesting wisdom. And even further to that, it doesn't limit it to that belief system. You've now anthropomorphized this out over a system that's happened globally a long time ago. Everyone was on board with this. And that's a greater question than anything else. Like, where the hell did that come from? What were they talking about? How did they all sit there and say, you know, was it just like a couple of guys sitting out of a you know, cave uh, for a better term, kind of looking up at the stars and somebody going like we do with clouds. Hey, that looks like a puppy dog. Hey, that looks like a man pouring a pitcher. I'm going to name him Aquarius. And you know what's cool? And then they like tells this these stories uh, to their children and then they just kind of pass this on. But then it becomes this huge thing. And then it becomes like a map. It's like, OK, well, uh, kind of like um, in the Bible, whenever they say they follow the North Star. OK, some people say that's a UFO and that's awesome. But basically, it's like landmarks. It's things that we could all kind of look at. It's global landmarks, which is interesting and what's even more interesting is those landmarks come to you and they move and they oscillate and they rotate and so everyone kind of gets their 
time to be presented with this idea to kind of work through it. Um, again, I, I could just talk to you about this, this shit forever, dude. So, but uh, if you didn't want to touch on that, then uh, do you want to hop into your presentation? Because I want to check this. Yeah, out. let me let me hop into the presentation for the interest of time. But let me let me uh, do po point out a couple of things that you said there. Um, it is this system is so profound and so deep and so multi-layered that i do not believe it came about kind of the way i think your metaphor is great i love i love metaphors and your spider-man comic books metaphor great great metaphor very helpful for understanding what's going on the and i would argue that the ancients knew they understood it more than, than we do today because there was a second catastrophe and that was the imposition of this literalist christian worldview that then tried to eat the world and is still working on that project it's an it's a it's a world conquering system that is imperialist in nature it goes out and conquers and takes resources from other cultures and uses its and, and sets up some uh, you know moral platitudes to excuse what is inexcusable to do okay so there was a second catastrophe so the ancients understood quote the spider-man comic books better than we do today but i agree that it's quite possible that they didn't even you know the ancient egyptians obviously were doing some incredible things and had these myths which are based on the same system i've demonstrated that in there's there's far more than i could put into a book that could be looked at they understood it to a profound degree but even they like you said might have been in that situation of finding the spider-man comic books and trying to make sense of them whereas today we're even now we've had centuries of someone telling us that those spider-man comic books are something completely the opposite of what they are so there's a second catastrophe that happened but this system is so profound that it wasn't just it didn't evolve from the ground up of people looking at the stars like you kind of described in the cave and then the stories somehow arrived at this it's like you've got to understand you've got to be i sometimes use mr miyagi mr miyagi had to be a karate master at a very deep level before he could say okay how am i going to teach this kid this kid needs some help i'm going to use something i got to reach into something that he will understand wax the car you don't start waxing the car and then become mr miyagi with you know it's like mr miyagi had to already be a master to say this will work or i've got actually a great quotation that i i sometimes pull out I'll get it right here um this is from uh, alvin boyd kuhn someone i reference a lot he died in 1963 same year as john f kennedy in a, in a couple of weeks here uh he was born in 1880 so he's older than kennedy but uh Alvin Boyd Kuhn said, reflection of the realities of a higher world and the phenomena of a lower world could not be detected when only the one world, the lower, was known. You cannot see the nature of that nature, sorry. You cannot see that nature reflects spiritual truth unless you know the form of spiritual truth. And such knowledge would be an a priori requirement to making the comparison at all you had to know it a priori beforehand to make the compare it's like here's a, a kind of a you know 
cruder example, but if you're a contractor and, and I'm not, I'm not super handy, you know, <laughs> but if, if you live in a house after a while, you learn how to change the dang, you know, pipes under the sink or <laughs> fix a water heater, you know, I've done all those things, not necessarily super well, but there's such a thing as a male end and a female end of various, you know, fittings, whether it's an electrical socket or a whatever. And we say the male end and the female end. Now, those are sexual references. You would not expect a three-year-old to start talking about a ratchet in terms of a male end and a female end. And you'd be like, wait a minute, somebody better talk to this kid because that's something you don't really understand until a little bit later, you know, at least 13 or 14. You're starting to think about those kinds of comparisons. So it's, it's a metaphor that presumes knowledge of something a little bit higher in other words, this whole system was put together by someone who already knew profound spiritual truths. It wasn't like, you know, people stumbled around and started calling ratchets male end and female end before they knew about sex. It just don't, doesn't make any sense, right? This is, a, this is a profound ancient system that came from something very sophisticated spiritually. Dude, it definitely is. And this would, this is where it lends to the idea of like entropy, right? It's kind of like not only have we gotten far away from the knowledge that we used to have, it was kind of almost like you were born with it because there were either less distractions, less programming, less bullshit, whatever. It seems like a purer time. Uh, and it does seem like they were kind of born with some ancient wisdom. Like already they come in new to this earth, knowing how to drive a car, you know, and they've just got physics down and they just know things. And then that's, it's kind of like, okay. And then you play, it's almost like this game of uh, spiritual telephone. You know what I mean? Where you start telling the story and uh, presenting these ideas down the generation, but they get perturbed and misjudged. And then somebody goes, oh, all I have to do is say the real word. But if I say this other word, then I control everything. So I'm just going to tell you that this is what it is. It, it's fascinating to me, uh, these concepts of this degradation or this entropy, like we say, uh, with spirituality, but I think it ebbs and flows. I think it's through a cycle and it's all this rebirth and stuff. So, uh, Yeah, totally, totally great, great lines of conversation that we could go down. Like I say, man, I could talk to you forever about all of this stuff. So, and this is what's wonderful. So I want to check out your presentation and then um, me and you will, of course, you know, we could nerd out on this stuff forever. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me, let me show it so that people can, you know, people who are listening and may be going, you know, what based on the stars, you know, what does that even mean? Or what are you talking about? Let me show you, but you're right. It clearly blows apart this kind of cult of progress that, you know, we're taught in school, you know, my kids are now full, full grown and uh, either in college or out of college. But I remember in third grade, they're coming home with the school book that talks about early humans. And then, oh, from the early humans, we went to the hunter gatherer and then we poof, Egypt, you know, it actually, it makes no sense to Yes. But it's this timeline that just keeps going up, up, up. And supposedly we're more advanced than the Egyptians. Well, it's cyclical for sure. Yeah, like we're the best thing out there. And these people still throw water bottles empty in the back of their truck and they think it's going to stay in there. And it's not considered littering because <laughs> the highway blew it out. You're an idiot. You know, what are we talking about here? It's little, little well, stuff and, like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and this, this, this idea of this straight line of progress... Um, yeah. Anyway, I know there we was can some, other, out on there this was some other thought I just had, but let, let's let's <laughs> jump into what 
what in the world am I talking about? And, I, and I'll say again, I don't know if I close the loop on this. I can show beyond doubt that this is going on. Then we can debate about what it means. Oh, is yeah. this, was this for beneficial or was this to hide and suppress the people? You know, that's a common, you hear that a lot in the alternative uh, media circles that, you know, we're both very familiar with that. Oh, this is all an enslavement of humanity system. I spend a lot of time in my most recent book, Myth and Trauma, arguing that it's not that. It's intrinsically, it's an uplifting system, but just like psychology, you know, the purpose of psychology or medicine is to help people, you know, ostensibly. That's what, if you're a psychologist and you understand the human mind, you can help people maybe better than the average person. But if you're an evil psychologist, yes. you can mess people up better than the average person. So I contend that this system is for uplifting, but there are people who know the system because I think the system is about healing trauma, revealing trauma and healing trauma. But guess what? You can use the system and say, oh, man, I know a lot about trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Let me use that. It's supposed to make people more powerful. And like you said, the divine spark that's in everybody. Let me use that to twist people and separate them even more from that concept because I don't want a bunch of powerful people running around and making their lives better. That gets in my way. I want to be the only one in this village who knows Kung Fu. Go and, ahead. And that's it. No, it's, it is. It's a hijacking of knowledge. But also, I think it's all perfect. If I can zoom out on a macro as well, I think you know, I kind of resonate with the idea because I don't know for sure that we're all one uh, being experiencing it, one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. So we're here to learn or grow or just play. And so it seems like on these scales like this, if you start with the divine knowledge, maybe the knowledge then wanted to separate out from itself a little bit to create more of a dichotomy or extremes here. And again, we're just having fun talking about the ideas. Uh, and then you get to a point cyclically, uh, which your soul already knows about because you can extrapolate these things out because there is no such concept as time in this model. Uh, and so therefore, once you get to a point with how thick things are here with the knowledge being suppressed, but the knowledge being deliberately suppressed. And then I'm going to say hijacking at least, what, 85% of the world right now or 85% of the cognitive ability on the planet uh, lacks critical thinking and they just want to be led. And again, this kind of speaks to these crazy long cycles and stuff, but I think that we are definitely ending this one coming into, if you want to market by Aquarius, which some people do, uh, the Mayans already had ta talked about these things, the, Cal the Yuga cycle, um, they refer to these as well. And the Hopis, you know, this is just a a, you know, pattern of birth and destruction that is never ending. And it's fascinating, but it's really cool when things, uh, when we get artifacts that survive, uh, things that have been multi cataclysmic, like what you're talking about here with this global information. I think it's so cool, dude. Uh, uh, just yeah, no, great, in. great points. Okay, go ahead. No, you're fine. I just wanted to let the audio only audience know that he does have some dope presentation stuff happening. So if you'd like to click the link in the show notes titled expandingrealitypodcast.com, the video will be there. Or if you're already subscribed over on YouTube, check that out or click the link that says YouTube. It's all findable. We're not easy to, uh, we're easy to track down. We're not hard to find. So uh, go check that out for the audio only audience. But if you just want to sit here and listen to the smooth stylings of David Walter Matheson, <laughs> he will definitely provide entertaining uh, knowledge with that. Yeah. Thanks, Brandon. And, you know, I think that whole little discussion, I'd love to go, you know, more, more, yeah. more down we'll, there. Go, we'll go balls uh, on this. Stuff, you know, man. Yeah. The, 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 we're all just members of one experience. I, I, I'm not a hundred percent signed up for that just because it could lend itself. And I know you're not saying this, but it could lend itself to, well, okay, then I'll just, you know, if I kill a few 
thousand people, they'll just come experience it again in a different way. You know, no, that was that was part of their experience. You know, um, I think we do it. We do have to be careful of, yeah. of that um, concept. But let's let's take a look at the hard. Let's dial it down into the hard evidence, uh, so I can show some examples that people, because you know, some people may be like, "What does that mean?" I know that I know I get that a lot so let me show what i'm talking about with a little share screen presentation that i've got prepared i chose a few you know i try and choose some different ones um that, that maybe i haven't talked about as much you can find all my a lot of my old archive podcasts uh, yeah so there we are Custom. it is that is awesome yeah. man. <laughs> this nice. one's for this one's for expanding reality I love it. and I'm going to actually start off with a paper that was published in a scholarly journal called The Orpheus Myth in North America by an, a researcher, a scholar named Anna Gayton, Anna H. Gayton, or A.H. Gayton as it's written here. And that was published in the Journal of American Folklore in 1935, the July-September edition. And you can go find this whole thing online and read the whole thing for yourself. And this is talking about a specific myth pattern that is found in the Americas, and they call it the Orpheus myth. That's a reference to a Greek myth that we'll talk about. It's a, obviously a bit uh, culturally biased to say, oh yeah, well, they're all doing the Orpheus myth. Actually, their versions of the myth and, the, and these versions we'll talk about are found from coast to coast in all the different nations of North America and their variations. The variations actually have more details in them than the Orpheus myth. So maybe we should call the Orpheus myth a variation of these, but either, either way, this pattern startled and astonished Europeans when they first came over to the Americas. In fact, it is written about from, by some of the very first Jesuit you know, missionaries that came over in the 1600s. And even this paper addresses the possibility, well, is it possible that these Christian missionaries might have brought along? And she says, no, for a variety of reasons. For number one, we have some of the very earliest, when there was very little penetration uh, by Europeans into the Americas, talking about it and being surprised by it. And second of all, look, it's, it's coast to coast. It's not like the missionaries were coming over here and teaching the finer points of Greek mythology. That was not their, that was not their purpose. And all these stories, they're different enough to where it is clearly not descended from the Greek version. It is their remnants of some ancient most likely some ancient worldwide system that is now all these different permutations have arisen all those permutations that were all you know that were already present didn't come from missionaries spreading the story and then it permuted you know wildly anyway so they were astonished when they came over here and here's kind of her introduction she says there's these tales of the recovery of a beloved person from the land of the dead and They've been variously referred to by titles such as the Orpheus myth or Orpheus and Eurydice. That's his beautiful wife that goes down into the underworld and Orpheus has to try and bring her back. This pattern, it's actually not just in the Americas. It's in the stories of ancient Japan. It's around the world, this descent to the underworld. Even Odysseus, I referred to the Odyssey. He goes down, wants to talk to his mother. Um, 
the visit to the underworld. So they basically say, look, it's, it's, there's a clear pattern. It's the pattern is strong enough for us to just call it the Orpheus myth. Let's just, let's just use that title. Um, and then she lists here some of the elements of this pattern. She says this essential framework includes following the deceased down into the underworld. Then the hero who's going down to try and rescue the deceased receives some supernatural aid. The, the one who's passed away discourages Usually it's her husband. She says, look, you can't follow me. Look, I, I, I have to go somewhere. You can't come. And, but he persists. The journey is always to the West in the North American versions. That's not in the Orpheus version, by the way. And she actually has like a total of 13 things. They encounter obstacles. Almost always there's a river to cross. Think of the river Styx in ancient Greece. Um, overcoming of obstacles. Some of the obstacles you know, will turn you into a fish if you fall into the water, things like that. There's the presence of a guardian who also gives assistance. There's attributes there. The dead usually say, ah, there's something that smells bad around here. Oh, we got a living person down here. What, <laughs> what's he doing here? Um, that's in the North American versions. Again, not in the Orpheus myth. And it goes on. Eventually, the, the, the dead one will be allowed to come back, but with certain conditions. If you look at 10A there, it says maintaining continence. That's the way she's talking about sexual um, abstinence is what that means. It doesn't mean when we say continence, it usually means something else. Um, yeah, it's got to do with pooping, right? <clears throat> <laughs> well, yeah, control over, yeah. <laughs> in my reductive way to, yeah, to put it. <laughs> so she's not talking about that. That's not one of the contingents that you don't have to go to the bathroom while it's they cannot have sex for let's say six days or something like that. And if they do, or even a kiss, she's going back to the underworld. And so there's these conditions. And in almost all occasion, cases, the conditions are not fulfilled and she ends up going back to the underworld. Yeah. Like the don't, don't turn around and then they turn to pillows. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like with, exactly. didn't that happen with uh, Orpheus and Eurydice? Like he went to Hades to go get her and then he said, just don't turn around. And then when he turned around, he couldn't see yes. if she was there. Okay. That's like yes. the only myth that I remember. So now I'm channeling Jay Hennahan right now. He'd be proud. <laughs> and Orpheus was the Greek god of music, correct? It's very good. Well, so he was, he was not the god of music. So we'll get into all those little things as we rush along here. But let me just show, this is again from Anna Gayton's paper from 1935. These are, she's interviewing people from these different nations of North America who were told this story by a grandparent or who knew the story. And, and she, she has a different like pieces of the story. Well, this, this, when, when I went to the Pawnee, uh, there was a ceremony of return. There was a container for the soul or there wasn't a container for, for the soul in that story. So the pattern, she's showing the pieces of the pattern, but look at how widespread it is. And even she mentions Onondaga in the, paper they're not actually listed they're up there in the region of huron and seneca in what is today new york in uh, canada great lakes region the onondaga also have a version of this story and in any case it is very very widespread and it is coast to coast but it has a great amount of variation across the nation but enough recognizable patterns to say this is all part of some Orpheus type story that's in common with the Orpheus myth. And we could also call it the Izanami story in, or there's a Japanese um, myth 
that has the same pattern. There's all these different uh, variations on this around the world. So we'll get into the Orpheus myth. Just, you know, that was a great, it's great the only one I remember. job there. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> and I'm job. glad that that was the one you pulled out. I had a guitar <laughs> named Orpheus because of the music connection. Oh, that- awesome. Awesome. Well, the music is so important. And we will talk about the God of music and Orpheus was the greatest human musician. Okay. But he's also like a, a cult figure. There were Orphic hymns that are very important to check out. So let me show this is on. So she, this paper is like 31 pages long. You can read the whole thing. I'm not going to show a lot of text here. Mostly I like to show a lot of pictures, but this is a version that she quotes. She happens to cite, she says to furnish acquaintance there in the second paragraph to furnish acquaintance with the Orpheus myth, we'll use a Yokuts story. So the Yokuts actually are right near the area where I live, where I'm talking to you from right now. So let's acknowledge the fact that all this land was, you know, the Native Americans lived here. This was their land given to them. They were allowed to be born here. So they're the people of the land. And then it was taken by the same system that we're alluding to the you know, the whole conquest, and we don't need to revisit all the atrocities, but the Californian Native Americans were, by almost all accounts, very peaceful. They lived together without a whole bunch of wars. There were a lot of different language groups, but they weren't killing each other. And basically, the Europeans, when they came, they talked about how easy they were to kill. Oh, you know, the army units would roll up to a village and start slaughtering people and saying, and, and afterwards, they would write the report. It was, you know, it was completely easy. There was very little resistance or the, you know, a couple of men tried to resist with their fishing spears and they were quickly killed. So it's a horrendous story and it is connected to what we're talking about. Basically, I grew up where that red arrow crosses the peninsula there in the Bay Area. That's the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where I lived uh, growing up. And today I live down here. And actually, we have in the county where I live a an important ancient um, petroglyph site is simply called Painted Rock. It's in the Carrizo Plain, and it's often attributed to the Yokuts. I'm not sure really how it's known who did these, but they're quite um, unique in that they're multicolored. There's yellow, red. It's, a lot of times the petroglyphs in North America don't have as many colors as this one has. And then in the 1930s, people shot at it with shotguns and blasted away a lot of the painting so it's tragic tragic also but yeah but i've been there and um you know it's it's quite close to where i live and it's and it's potentially ancient yokuts but it was it's quite an important site anyway let's to 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 get back to i just wanted to put that in to acknowledge that fact that history and then let's just look at a couple of the elements here uh, in this story people can like i said go check it out oh and here's a slightly more modern map with a little bit more detail but again same same general area that the yokuts uh nation and they were almost completely exterminated but there are still uh descendants of the you know they're still members of the yokuts nation today but in this story they talk about a, a man who had a very nice wife is how it's described here and uh, she died and was buried and her husband decided to follow her to the next world and uh 
he knew that she would stay in her grave for two nights and two days, and then she would get up and leave. So he went to the grave and said to himself, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to watch. And when you get up and leave, I'm going to follow you. And so he, it says he hollowed out a little place in the ground nearby and lay down in it. Like he made a little grave for himself. So on the second night, just before dawn, when objects could scarcely be seen, the woman got up, arranged her clothing. She had a bead band on her head. She shook out her hair and replaced the ornaments. She shook out all her beads. The man cried as he watched her. He's watching his wife getting up and shaking out all her, her bead ornaments, and she started to walk off. She staggered just as if she were drunk. Uh, this is the part I'm quoting from. I forgot I put that box there. She looked back. She saw him, but she ignored him. So they walked on for a night and a day. Finally, she said, what are you doing here? You're alive. You can't cross that bridge. What bridge is she talking about? We'll find out. You'll fall in and become a great fish, she said. So she's warning him, don't try and follow me. Then they came to the bridge. In the middle of the river is a bird, a killdeer, who tries to scare those people who are crossing by suddenly saying, kick, 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 kick. <laughs> if a person loses balance and falls in the water, yeah, you laugh. But if you lose your balance and fall in the water, you become a fish forever. Yeah, it's like a floor is lava kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So this is, this, these are details of the story. He's going to, but does he give up? He does not give up. It actually says the man, she, she goes across the bridge and she cries. The man began to cry. He's like, I'm going to lose her. Look, look at this. I mean, the story brings tears to your eyes when you think about it. I, this is it. She's, she went across the bridge. She told me I, if I go across, I'll get turned into a fish forever. And he began to cry. But then he had with him an eagle down rope right here. So he threw that across and then he skimmed safely over the bridge. So he's like, I'm, I'm all or nothing. I'm not going to give up. I'm going for it. And then he gets across to the other side. There's his wife and many people, they were dancing around to dance. And uh, it says there in the brackets, they're inserting some editorial content. They were doing the ghost dance. Everyone spoke of the newcomer's unpleasant smell because he was alive. Anyway, let's. Um, I love that. We could dive into this, you know, more and more, but I just want to show that this pattern is going on. It has these details that I've called out a few details that we're going to look at as we go to the celestial. But let's go to or uh, Orpheus and Eurydice really uh, briefly, since you mentioned it. This is a statue of Eurydice. The story is that Orpheus, as you mentioned, he played the lyre, which is like a harp that you can, but not as big as a, you know, what we think of as a harp, you can carry it around. So like a guitar, basically a guitar is a form of a lyre. And he was the most amazing. He could even make the rocks begin to weep if he wanted to sing a really sad song, even the stones would start to weep. And so, you know, he was very sought after by the ladies. Uh, because he's a great musician. That's the same as today, right? Why does anybody take up guitar? Good thing so, that got passed out. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful Eurydice on their day of marriage. Ovid, there's there's many different um, you know sources of that preserve this story. It's a very famous ancient myth. Ovid says she was walking through the grass accompanied by the naiads who are these basically goddesses the naiads so she's walking with these other goddesses through the grass on the day of her wedding she's still a virgin ovid kind of makes a reference to a god of virginity who was there at the wedding to to show that you know she's still a virgin but 
the torch wasn't, uh, there were no good omens is what Ovid says. It doesn't look like they're going to have a very happy marriage. And sure enough, right after the wedding, she's, wa she's walking in happiness, basically with her divine bridesmaids, the naiads, through the, through the field and her ankle. Ovid says the sharp tooth of a serpent pierced her ankle, filled her with poison, and she died. And of course, Orpheus is distraught. And this this uh, statue is obviously not ancient. This is, I think it's in the Louvre in France. So it's a more modern, uh, I forget what century, but you can see that the artist has put the uh, serpent around her foot coming up and biting her ankle right there. If you look at the detail very closely, I put it bigger so people who are looking on a small little phone can see it. But I recommend you go look at this. When we get to the stars, you want this on as big of a screen as you can. So anyway, there's what happens to Eurydice. So she goes down to the underworld, but Orpheus doesn't give up. Just like, just like uh, in the story that we just saw from the Yokuts nation, we have Orpheus says, oh, I cannot live without her. This is just, this is horrible. He goes down to the underworld, says he crosses the river Styx. He goes past the dreadful phantoms that are starting to crowd around him. The guardian dog of the underworld, Cerberus with his three heads. But Orpheus has no problem getting past Cerberus because he can play the liar like nobody else. Even the shades start to weep when he starts to play. So he goes down to the king and the queen of the underworld, the goddess Persephone and the god of the dead, whose name the Greeks wouldn't even mention, but you know his name. And Orpheus starts playing and, and, and Ovid even, you know, kind of gives the, the words of his song. He says he started singing and, he, and basically he said in his song, listen, king and queen of the underworld, I know my wife has died on her wedding day. It, it just, I, it's so horrible. I know you don't have to let her go, but I've been smitten by love. And even the God of love or the goddess of love is not unknown down here. I know that, you know, even you, God of the underworld, you fell in love with Persephone. And over, over time, she fell in love with you too. And I, I, I believe that even the power of love is working down here. Can you please, and they're so moved by his song, can you please let her go back with me? And the song moves their hearts and they say, and, and the king of the underworld, the god of the underworld says, you've moved us with your song, Orpheus. We've never done this before, but I will let her go back with you. But on one condition, you have to trust all the way back up the long journey to the world of the living. You have to trust that she's back there following you. If you look back, that shows a, a doubt. That shows a lack of trust. And, and you'll, lose, you'll lose her forever. So don't look back. And so here's a, one artist's depiction. She's following. In this case, she's holding his hand, holding his arm. She's looking down at some snakes. She's like, snakes? Why did it it's have like, to be snakes? Yes, thank you. You beat me too. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> but he's not going to look back. And in the, you know, in the myths, she doesn't make any noise because she's a phantom. She's a shade now. She's, she's in the land of the dead. She can't say anything. He just has to trust that she's back there. Maybe he can't even. She's holding his hand, but he can't even feel it. And up they go, all the way up. And he's, he's got his, you know, look at the resolve in his face. He's like, I'm not going to look back. I'm full of doubt, but I'm not going to look back, not going to look back, 
not going to look back, but he gets to that last step. And it's a big step to get out from the road to the underworld up to the land of the sunshine again, the land of life. It's a big step. And without thinking, he turns around to help her. And that's all he sees is her fading back to the underworld. Ovid says he hears distant word of her last cry is farewell. And, but he can barely hear it because she's disappearing back into the underworld. Look at the step. You know, he, he went up the step. It was so big that he just, without thinking, had to turn around to help her. And Ovid says, what, what could she do? Could she blame him? It was all for love that he turned around, but that made him lose her forever. And then Ovid goes on to say he was so distraught that he never, never remarried. All the women, you know, would pursue him, but he was, he was just heartbroken. And there's his lyre. You see it again there at the bottom by his foot there. He's dropped it. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And on a couple levels, I mean, of course you'd have trust issues with the god of the underworld i mean who knows if that dude can be trusted at all and then yeah chivalry is not dead in this but obviously it screwed him over in the end he should have just been like all right good luck i hope you can climb up this thing if you're really back there it's got to trust you've got to trust but but it's the same thing it is it's tragic the doubting orpheus and doubt plays a role in myths around the world so what's going on here what well let's um go to the stars because Oh, here's one more. This is a, a sculpture by Antonio Canova, a fantastic sculptor who lived in the, I think, late 1600s and then early 1700s. I think this is also maybe in the Louvre. I'm not positive, but there, there's Eurydice right after he turned around. Oh, you're not supposed to turn around, Orpheus. And she looks at him longingly and he's like, he realizes what he's done. Oh no, I turned around. And if you look very closely, I've looked at the statues before and maybe even used them in a previous podcast, but I never noticed until getting ready for this one right here. If the you look hand. really closely, yep. there's a hand. That's coming the first up. thing I looked at yes, <laughs> to grab her, to pull her back. Damn. That's cool. Sculptures are awesome, by the way. I don't think people really kind of appreciate what it takes to make one of those damn things and what that, you know, how you have to see that to create that. That's fascinating. It is an amazing sculpture and it's moving. That's what artwork does. And that's what myth does. And that's what literature does. That's what poetry does. That's what music does. That's what music does. And Orpheus is the, and he has a lyre. And so let's figure out what's going on in the sky. And we'll relate it back to the myth of the yokuts as well. And some of the patterns that are found in North America. Yeah, it's like music, art, all of these things are just extra layers of mystic tapestry, you know, that's here to make everything more beautiful. And, and and to lift us up and to uh, and to also like Mr. Miyagi used waxing the car to bypass some of the like mental blockages. Daniel, if if Mr. Miyagi had just said, okay, well, when Johnny's kick comes in and it looks like he's about to take your head off, if you do this with your arm, it will stop it. Daniel would have been like, is that really going to work? Wait, what? What exact angle do I need to put my hand? Wait, how do I move my hand again? So to bypass all the doubting aspects of his, uh, Dan- Danielson was a damaged, you know, doubting self, you know, doubting his own self individual, very clearly had a lot of issues going on. And Mr. Miyagi had to 
short circuit or go around those with a metaphor. So that's what I believe is also going on here. So, and I, I use that, meta, that, that parallel a lot, but I think it's a, a kind of illustrative of what I believe is going on in these myths. So what I'm going to use the outlines of H.A. Ray, and sometimes I spend a lot of time discussing why those are so important, but the outlines that are typically given to us for understanding the constellations are horrible. H.A. Ray was an author, a famous author. You've heard of H.A. Ray. H.A. Ray and his wife, Margaret, I'll just say, for those who haven't heard me say it before, usually I like play a little game like, have you heard of H.A. Ray? H.A. Ray and his wife, Margaret Ray, created Curious George and illustrated Curious George. But H.A. Ray also wrote this book called The Stars, A New Way to See Them with these outlines. And guess what? I don't know how, but his outlines are the outlines for understanding the ancient myth and they line up with ancient artwork i'll show a quick example of that as we go on but let's see who is eurydice who is orpheus there is a lyre that's a constellation called the lyre lyra or lyra um it could be pronounced both ways some of these there's different pronunciations even in the dictionary they'll give you a couple of different forms but let's see who gets bitten on the ankle by a serpent and goes down to the underworld this is a constellation. It's not a familiar constellation to everybody, but it's one that people joke, you know, um, <laughs> that I can't go without talking about this constellation for five minutes. It's like, I'm not saying it's Ophiuchus, but it's Ophiuchus. <laughs> this constellation <laughs> is so important. It's a very pivotal constellation in many, many ways, profound ways. Ophiuchus has this central body and is holding a serpent. The ne very name Ophiuchus means a serpent holder, but look at kind of the central body looks like almost like a tombstone or an obelisk. And then on either side is the serpent halves, but those become different things in different myths. On the left side, as we're looking at it, is the serpent tail. On the right side is the serpent head. That's not the serpent that bites her in the ankle, however. Right below Ophiuchus, there's another constellation right here. And what constellation is that? Well, in the interest of time, <laughs> because we're already a little behind schedule, but, but uh, stay with me. Scorpio. Directly below Ophiuchus is Scorpio, right next to the heel of Ophiuchus, right there. And there's even a Bible passage, if you know, if you went to Sunday school or you've been to the uh, studying the scriptures very much, you'll know that in Genesis 3.15, there's a prophecy about the seed of the woman will crush the head or the seed of the serpent. It will crush your head and you will bite his heel. That is referring to a specific set of constellations that you're looking at right now. Ophiuchus above Scorpio. Ophiuchus looks like he's stepping on the head of Scorpio. Scorpio looks like he's biting the heel of Ophiuchus. And you might say, but Scorpio is not a serpent. I thought... Eurydice was bitten by a serpent. Scorpio, there's a lot of serpents in the sky, and Scorpio plays a serpent more than it plays a scorpion. Yeah. Sometimes it's a serpent a with multiple heads. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And please feel that's free right. to take your time, man. We're not on a schedule. Oh, Just yeah. Enjoy your, right yeah, take your time. No hurry. <laughs> well, I want everyone to enjoy the myth. I know, I'm Sorry. excited and, too. This is amazing. So this is how she goes down into that. So I'm arguing that Eurydice, the beautiful Eurydice, may be in some way associated with Ophiuchus. And if you go back, if, you, if you're watching this on YouTube and you go back and look at some of the paintings, you'll see that she has kind of a, 
a veil around her or a, a sheet or a shroud. And if you look at Ophiuchus, it's got a central body and then kind of a, the serpent halves could be the shrouds of a veil or a, a winding sheet, okay? Just like Osiris is always depicted as a mummy wrapped in, you know, shrouds. And, you know, everybody kind of accepts that Osiris must be somehow uh, associated with Orion. And I don't deny that Osiris is associated with Orion, but guess what? I found abundant evidence that Osiris is actually also associated with Ophiuchus. So figures that go down to the underworld are often associated with Ophiuchus in some way. And there's meaning. This whole system is, there's profound meaning. It's like a language. It's like there's more to waxing the car, Mr. Miyagi will eventually show, than just waxing the car. These have symbols that have profound esoteric meaning. It's like a whole system of, of alphabet or hieroglyphs. Anyway, uh, continuing on, who could Orpheus be then? Who goes down to the underworld? Well, right above Ophiuchus, there is a figure. I didn't outline it to not get too cluttered. That's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the constellation Hercules, right above Ophiuchus. And right next to Hercules is Lyra, or Lyra, the liar. And so I think that Orpheus is almost certainly associated with Hercules when he's not in the underworld. But when he goes down to the underworld to rescue his wife, he is associated with a different constellation. I'm going to outline it now. And that is Sagittarius. And I'm going to prove or give you some evidence to support that argument that when he goes down to the underworld, he takes on the positioning of Sagittarius there to lead her back from the underworld. And some of the arguments have to do with the god of music, who isn't Orpheus. Who do you think could be the god who also has a lyre in Greek myth? Damn it. Just, uh, just go with your higher, higher, first thing that comes to mind. Uh, Zeus, Greek or Roman? He's Greek. Okay. He's Greek. Zeus. It's not really Zeus. It's not Zeus. It's one of the... Uh, other gods. But that's a good guess, though. Zeus is uh, associated, actually, with Hercules, that constellation up there. Hercules, I go into it in, in other, I don't want to get too off track. It's a good guess, but it's not actually Hercu uh, Zeus. It's actually Apollo. Apollo. The god, it, it, he's also the god of healing. He's a god of a lot of things. Um, but Apollo is often depicted with a lyre in ancient, uh, I could show some ancient, I'm going to show some more modern statues just for clarity's sake, but I'm going to show that Apollo is associated with Sagittarius and Apollo has a lyre. Apollo also has a bow. Look at Sagittarius. You see Sagittarius holding a bow? Yeah. Bow and arrow. It's almost like an inverted bow and arrow, but anyway, yeah, a bow dangerous. and arrow <laughs> and pointing it at what? Scorpio again. Does Apollo kill any dragon serpent-like creatures? He does, actually, in the myths. We won't go into it, but he kills a serpent dragon named Python, or the Python is where we get our word Python. She's a, a dragon who lives at Delphi, and that's how Apollo gets the temple of Delphi. It used to belong to Python, and the, the priestess of, of Delphi was always called the Pythia, or the Pythia, the P-Y-T-H-I-A, because uh, she was getting her visions from the fumes that rising up from the python. But uh, anyway, you can see that he's pointing his bow, but that bow, I'm going to argue, could also be a liar. And you may say, ah, that's a stretch. Come on, prove it to me. So let me show you a piece of artwork. 
It's a photograph I took myself. I love this piece of artwork. I think I showed it on Jay's show. I've shown it a lot. So I'll just briefly, this is not Apollo. Who is this? This is the goddess Artemis. Well, Artemis happens to be a twin. She's a goddess who's a twin. Who's her twin brother? Well, that would be Apollo. So Apollo and Artemis are twins. He's associated with the sun. She's associated with the moon. But I have shown that beyond doubt, this ancient artist from the 500s BC or 400s BC is depicting the goddess Artemis in the exact outline of Sagittarius that's given to us by H.A. Ray in 1952 book. But somehow he's tapped into the ancient wisdom, whether he received it from other people or received it from the divine realm, I have no idea. But look at the body posture of Sagittarius. Look at the body posture of Artemis. Look at the length of her skirt. Look at the position of her feet. Look at the angle of her body. Look at the angle she holds the bow and arrows. <laughs> Even, Even relative to what she's shooting at. I mean, at a, that yeah. downward angle, and then there's an adversary there. That's fascinating. And, and he's at the angle of Scorpio. I, yeah. the, the vase kind of curves away, but you can see it. in different. Sometimes I show like the flattened out version of it. But mainly I'm trying to establish that Apollo is associated with Sagittarius too, because he's twins, <clears throat> excuse me, with his sister Artemis, the goddess Artemis. There's even this distinctive feature of Sagittarius, this uh, kind of plume uh, the stars are there in the sky. It's not like H.A. Ray made this up. Look at the artist has put like a plumed tassel on her sword or whatever she has on her back there. I don't know if that's her quiver of arrows, maybe. But in any case, it's in the exact position as the. So Apollo also carries a bow and he uses his bow and arrows and the Iliad talks about him shooting arrows into the, into the warriors and things like that. But he also carries a lyre. So let me show, uh, this is a more modern statue, but it shows the lyre in the exact position where the bow is. So you can maybe start to see how ancients may have also seen that bow as a lyre. And look, he's even got his hand, hand over his head. Yes, like the plume. Like the plume, thank you, perfect. When you see that in artwork, uh, even going back to the 1600s, 1500s, or even ancient artwork, like I've talked about the Pylos combat agate. There's a, a figure on the ground who has his hand in that exact position. Suspect potential Sagittarius because of the plume. You, you saw it right away. Um, but he also, he wears a crown of certain type of leaves. And it's a specific type of leaves that the god Apollo is associated with. But it's like the victor's crown, even the Olympic Games. That's what the the Olympian athletes were playing for was the crown. It was a laurel leaf crown. Here's another modern depiction of Apollo with his lyre, but this time he's wearing the crown of laurel leaves. You see the laurel crown on his head there. I got to be honest. I think we need to bring that style back. That's amazing. Yeah. Why don't, why don't I mean, that's better than a gold. Medium, medal, right? We'll start it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but there is a crown right next to Sagittarius. I'm uh, the laurel crown. There are other crowns in the sky, but this is another additional piece of evidence. This is the Southern crown, also known as Corona Australis. Corona Borealis is right up above the word Ophiuchus. But so people could say, well, you can't use the crown as evidence that Apollo is Sagittarius. Well, I've got other evidence. Apollo is associated with Sagittarius. Trust me. He wears a crown. There's a crown right next to Sagittarius. Trust me. Apollo with his lyre is associated with Sagittarius, just as Apollo also has a bow. And so therefore, 
by the transitive property of myth and constellations, we can argue that Orpheus, when he goes down to the underworld and plays his lyre for the god of the dead and the goddess of the dead, he's down there as Sagittarius. Now, what's distinctive about Sagittarius is it looks like, if you look at this outline, you can envision it as looking, walking in one direction and looking back in another direction. Mm-hmm. Can you see that? Yep, I can. It's yeah. very common in myth, walking in one direction, looking back in another direction. I mean, even shooting the bow back in the other direction, but it looks like walking to the left, turning around, and then, oh, let me give you one last parting shot with this bow to the right. So Yeah, it's like a difference in uh, direction and focus. It shows polar oppositions to what you're focused on in the direction you're moving. That's right. And so what is Orpheus? If I'm arguing that Orpheus is associated with Sagittarius and he's trying to bring back his beloved Eurydice, who was bitten by the serpent, yep. she's associated with Ophiuchus. He's going along, going along on that long path back from the underworld and he turns around. Oh, damn it. Let me ask you a quick goes. question. Yeah. Oh, that was an awesome fade out. I apologize. I screwed up the thing. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. Okay. So do you think that um, the constellations that have to do with visits to the underworld have anything to do with their visual approximation uh, to the Milky Way? Yes. Great question. So the Milky Way is going to come into this story. Okay, I didn't mean to get ahead. Yeah, uh, no, 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 no. Just while you I have this map up. Absolutely. Like, mm. So this, this whole system has a language to it and it's profound and it's, and it goes far beyond, uh, you know, the layers are just infinite. You could probably go down and down forever. Whoever gave this to humanity, you know, the gods or sophisticated ancient culture, it is profound. And so the, the Milky Way is an extremely important pathway. The path of the Zodiac intersects with the path of the Milky Way. You can see the path of the Zodiac. We've got Scorpio and then Sagittarius. And then on to the right of Scorpio is Libra, the scales, and then there's Virgo. I didn't highlight them, but that's the path. And then to the left of Sagittarius is Capricorn, the goat, and then Aquarius. So that's the path of the Zodiac. That's like the world that we're in, which in a way is the underworld. We're in the underworld. Alvin Boyd Kuhn talks about this. We're in the lower realm here, experiencing the lower realm, but the God, the divine spark is in everybody. Everybody is uh, down here in the, in the flesh and blood world, but we also have this intersection with the divine realm and running up through a cross kind of angle to the path of the ecliptic and the sun and the planets is this glorious shining ring of the galaxy, our galaxy, the Milky Way, and you see it there. And so Ophiuchus being right next to the Milky Way is significant. And Sagittarius and Scorpio being right next to the Milky Way is significant. You're absolutely, it's very perceptive. And it's part of this big system that I'm trying to explore and articulate. And, and um, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 12 years and I didn't, it's like I've been, developing my understanding um, more and more as I go along. I didn't have all this understanding at the beginning. Even, you know, you can see that the myths are based on the stars. That's one thing, but then understanding what is the language. They're using a, a celestial language, but you have to learn almost an entirely new language and what these things mean. And you're right. So this Milky Way path, it stands for a lot of different things, but it does stand for an ascension from the underworld 
And guess what? You're in it. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like uh, Jeffrey Rush says in the first Pirates of the Caribbean. You best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one because <laughs> you're in one. Um, okay, so let's get, let's let me show how it also relates to the story of um, the Yokut story. But uh, let me see what I show next. Oh yeah, so you mentioned actually you kind of let me use a, a fancy schmancy academic term conflated, which means to kind of run together two stories. You kind of conflated the story of Lot's wife. That's a different story. Yes. I'm um, great at that. I she just gets, blend a bunch she, of shit. Together. No, no, <laughs> but because they're based on the same constellation. See, you're, you're very perceptive. Yeah. You're very perceptive. She, she, she looks back because she's in the position of, she's in the position of which constellation looks back. Sagittarius. So here's, this is the story of Lot and his two daughters fleeing. Um, notice how Ophiuchus is in between two kind of uh, halves. Yes. Lot yes. and his two daughters. And then Lot's wife is told, don't look back. We're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not look back. Do not look back. Lot's wife turns back. What happens to her? She gets turned into a pillar of salt. I want to go back to, uh, um, I actually had some circles and somehow I got the, uh, I got the slide messed up, but uh, this, oh my goodness, let me just show it here. <laughs> this is so great, man. This, you did a ton of amazing work on this. Look at, look at Lot's two daughters. That's Lot in between two daughters. Could he possibly be associated with Ophiuchus? Yes, he could be. He's even underneath a hill with a tower on it. Guess what? Ophiuchus often plays a hill. Ophiuchus often plays a tower. Here's Sagittarius, Lot's wife, looking back. She gets turned into a pillar of salt. She, she couldn't leave Sodom and Gomorrah. She had too many good times there. She couldn't leave without one last look back. And pillar of salt. And this is a statue. She's walking in one direction. This is Lot's wife. Obviously not an ancient statue again, but she just had to take one last look back and that was it. Lot says, come on, daughters, let's go. My wife is now a pillar of salt. She's trying to scoop um, her side guys back there. <laughs> well, whatever happened, it's not literal. She didn't act, look, I was, <laughs> I had a picture of Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt in my Bible for children as a child. And that was a scary picture. Yes. Yeah. It's a They'll scary story. Believing them, right? Yeah. <laughs> these are these are profoundly positive stories, I would argue, but they use some pretty bizarre and sometimes atrocious metaphors, but they're actually talking about spiritual truths that as we've kind of hinted at. So let me um let me go on to this one here. Boom. <laughs> so so let's go to that Yokut story though. If you remember some of the details, he has to cross a river Milky Way. See, the Milky Way could be a river yep. on a narrow, unsteady bridge. So here's the Milky Way. I just, for those who didn't see it, jump right out at them like you did. You, you immediately latched on and noticed that that's the Milky Way. Is that significant? Yes, it is. In the Eurydice story, Ovid does say that Orpheus has to cross the river Styx. In the Yokuts story and in the nations of North America, almost all of them, he has to cross a treacherous crossing over a river and is a narrow, unsteady bridge. And in some cases, if you fall off, you get turned into a salmon. So that's the Milky Way. Let me take the shading back out so people can see it. So you can see that there is something called the dark rift, which actually is a feature in the heavens. You can see it, the dark rift. 
the Maya called it the birth canal and, and other cultures sometimes associated with the birth canal. But can you see that there's like a dark path going across the Milky Way? Oh, yeah. I'll show it here. That's that's one way of drawing it out. But it's clearly there's a dark patch crossing the Milky Way, but it's kind of narrow and it's kind of wiggly. And right next to it, there's a constellation here called Aquila or Aquila, the eagle. And there's also another, there's one of the two great birds of the Milky Way, very distinctive, large constellation, looks much bigger than it does here on the screen. Above it is Cygnus, the swan, uh, just above the red path that I've drawn out, but it's kind of cut off by the top of the screen. But so these two great birds are flying towards one another. But right between them, there's a beautiful little constellation called, oh, by the way, the bird that tries to scare you is a, in the Yokuts version, a killdeer. These are killdeer. They have these uh, kind of bands across their uh, head and neck. And they look like that when they're flying. Look at Aquila. That's the killdeer that pops up. As you're trying to go across the river into the land of the dead, there's going to be a killdeer that's going to pop up and go, kick, 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 and try and get you to fall into the <laughs> river. Because they know if you fall into the river, you become a salmon forever. And here's the and they salmon. Each OS. You know, and even the point on their tail, uh, how it relates to a quilt yes. is fascinating. Oh, yeah. Uh, it thank looks you. way more like a mule deer than a uh, eagle. Yeah, I was I was actually going to point out the tail. I mean, I, I prepared this. I've I haven't put kill deer in any. No, no, no. I'm glad you said that because I forgot. I was I forgot about the tail. I, like I said, I prepared this. I try and do something different for every podcast. And I've never put the kill deer in there before. So last night when I was putting this in there, I was like, look at their tails. Look at that long tail. So I'm glad you said that because I forgot. I was, I was rushing onto the fish. There's the salmon that you get turned into if you fall into the river. That's Delphinus the dolphin. It's a beautiful little constellation. It's very small, but actually the stars are bright enough to, you can see it. And it really does look like a dolphin or in this case, a salmon that you get turned into when the killdeer startles you and you go and and what type of a rope remember that the hero of the story is going down to try and rescue his wife it's an eagle an eagle down rope so aquila or aquila the eagle uh which is a killdeer in the story but there's some memory or connection of an eagle in the story you know preserved in this myth and you know anna gayton didn't know when she wrote that paper in 1935 and didn't ever give any indication that she understood that this was based on the stars. She's just recording the myth as it's preserved by someone that she interviewed or that somebody interviewed and wrote down the Yokut's sacred story. It has these elements that clearly show it is part of a system. It's part of the same system as the Eurydice story from ancient Greece. And how does that happen if North America and California is on the opposite side of the globe as Greece. And these connections are not little connections. These are seriously, you know, supported by lots of clues, connections. And so this crossing path, um, this narrow bridge, there's another Bible story where they cross a body of water on a miraculous uh, crossing. You might be able to think of it. Uh, some kind of a exodus where you're coming out of the yeah, land the of sea. Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea. That is the Red Sea there, the Milky Way crossing of the Red Sea. You see Ophiuchus holding a staff or a rod to cause the opening to happen. Which figure do you think Moses might be associated with? 
Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus, yeah. This is a painting. Uh, he's not holding a staff in this painting, but that's Moses. And uh, I thought I had another Moses. Here's another one. This one, he has a little... Like a wand. Using a wand in this one. From, like he just plucked from, it off a tree when he was walking by. <laughs> you know what's interesting, too, about this stuff is it's almost like they the story's the same, but what they had to do is they had to appropriate different characters and animals and things for the either the people at the time. I mean, even perhaps somebody's like, well, I don't like the name Orpheus. Let's call him Osiris. And somebody's like, okay, that's fine. And then uh, it's, it's the same story. They just kind of um, traded out different uh, archetypes. It is fascinating. And the ancients understood that they were the same see you know when you talked about i actually believe that the gods are real this isn't uh just fable they're real principles real powers and real aspects that can take us over like the god of war in ancient greece is Ares, and mars in roman and he has certain characteristics he loves violence and he loves rage you know like he flies he's 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 aggressive and he's he also has an affair with aphrodite but he has these like certain he's a fast runner he's he's headstrong do we have that i mean do we have that god operating in us at any time why yes Uh, can that can that aspect take us over sometimes why quite frequently um these 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 the ancients when they would like the romans would say okay we're fighting the germ the germans now the germanic germania and oh up here they have a a god whom they call tu or uh tear or and we know it's mars or they have a god that they call hercules or there that that is related to our hercules they recognized in other words, they recognized the parallels. They had no problem saying, oh, you call the God this. I'm weak. That, I know that. I know all those characteristics. That's who we call Jupiter or Jove. You call Odin. And that's why Wednesday, Odin's day in Spanish is Jueves, Jove's day. The, the, the gods are the same. Uh, sorry, I just screwed that up. Thursday, Thor. <laughs> I just. Whoa, Dave doesn't know what he's talking no, about. No, you here. definitely Thursday do. is It'll Thor. <laughs> Thor. Thor is the god who's associated with uh, Zeus. Z- Zeus and Thor are the same constellation. They have the same characteristics. They're jolly. They love a good feast, but they also carry the most powerful weapon, thunderbolt in the case of Zeus, hammer in the case of Thor. They're the same constellation. They're jolly and love a good feast, and they are generally benevolent and... Um, gods that you would like to party with but they have a temper that is ferocious and and uh quite dangerous thor is quite dangerous when he gets angry so is zeus these these gods have the same characteristics from culture to culture and they're associated with the same constellation as part of some ancient pattern and all of these um the, the ancients understood that they, they didn't have a problem with that. It's only, it's only literalist comes in and says, no, they're all false and our stories are all true. Guess what? Your stories are based on the exact same system and they're all for actually beneficial purposes. They, they have to do with trauma and they have to do with recovery from trauma. That's one of the things that they're teaching. 
that is a central thing that they're teaching a central theme that runs through all of them um it's like I getting this the store-bought version of something versus the original you know it's like dr thunder versus dr pepper it's like they're the same thing basically right <laughs> it's just they call they're called different things uh and then i wanted to just touch on something that you said about uh them being real and this is what's very interesting is that on the show a lot we talk about um uh, or i talk about uh tulpas a lot in these thought form creations that um some people believe and there's evidence to show this uh that they can create something out of thin air mentally and then it will manifest and affect the 3d world around us that we exist in right and interact with us in whatever way that they were made up or personified in. It seems like, I mean, there are a lot of core levels to this. They either were actual created beings um, or they're allegories for human attributes or options, right? But what's really interesting too is I love how all of the gods, you know, they're supposed to be these huge, amazing, wonderful things, but they're very flawed and fallible. They still project a lot of human characteristics. And uh, that that's also interesting too. It kind of limits the idea of God, it's like, yeah, dude, he's got this thunderbolt, but man, he gets twisted real quick. Like you have a ton of patience, but not the power. It's just interesting kind of like uh, the the correlates uh, that are made that way. I don't know. But I like that they're it's literal. A, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. And it, I it really like that is. you latched onto that. And I would argue that the myths show that the gods work out their will through men and women. Through that's That's how, so you can... But you have you to can, be influenced, right? Not forced. They can't force you to do it, but they can right. coerce you to that's do it. That's right. Which, which shows the true nature of your power. Like they need you to carry out things on this plane, but you they, don't have they, to if you don't want to. That's right. They won't do it for you. They'll, they'll, give you, they'll give you weapons to help you or they'll give you tools to help you. I, I like the story of Perseus when he goes to, he gets kind of tricked by the king using Perseus's pride into going up, you know, the king says, yeah, I bet you couldn't bring back the head of Medusa, you know, and, <laughs> and Percy's is like, oh yeah, exactly, <laughs> hold my beer. And he starts traipsing off to find Medusa. And along the way, he's visited by the goddess Athena and the god Hermes. And they say, um, Perseus, <laughs> what you doing? <laughs> they know what he's doing. I'm going to bring back the head of Medusa. This, this king said I couldn't do it. You know anything about Medusa? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Let me tell you some things. Yeah. <laughs> Let me give you some things to help you with your journey. Let me give you some winged sandals. Let me give you a helmet of invisibility. Let me give you a shield because you won't succeed without our help. But guess what? We're not going to do it for you. So they'll give you the help if you're able to listen. So he, Perseus apparently was able to hear the voice of the gods or he paid attention. There were lots of other heroes who had tried to go bring back the head of Medusa before. That's why the king sent Perseus. He's like, nobody ever come back from that mission <laughs> because they didn't listen or they, didn't, they weren't able to hear. They weren't able to get in touch with that uh, higher realm that wants to give us help, even for an impossible mission. You know, you may feel like you're facing an impossible mission right now. Uh, COVID is going on. You know, the world is being locked down by successively more and more in, increasingly bizarre and drastic measures. Like what is going on? Uh, it, clearly trauma is being inflicted on purpose to try and shock the people like, you know, into trauma. Uh, you may feel like you're facing an impossible situation. Guess what? So was Perseus. He was going on an impossible mission, but he had access to help if he would pay attention to it. 
So that's why I think it's so important to listen to the myths. They're given for our, they're given for humanity's help. Uh, but <laughs> they're speaking a language that no one's listening to because they don't know the language that they're speaking. Because we've been told by some translator, oh, they're telling you this. The translator is telling you what they're saying and the translator is lying <laughs> or, yes. or the translator doesn't speak that language themselves. Maybe they're not lying. Maybe they're, um, you know, doing the best they can. They're trying to translate, but they don't speak. You've got a visitor from, you know, that speaks Cantonese and he's over to your house. I've used this example before. And you've got a friend who says, oh, I speak Cantonese. And the visitor comes over and says, thank you for this meal. I'm so glad you shared it with me. And your friend says, he just said, overcooked, terrible, <laughs> tastes like rubber, and can't believe that you insulted him like this. And you go, oh my gosh, he said that? <laughs> and, and the translator, the translator either doesn't speak Cantonese or is just messing with you. But these, these myths want to give you something helpful, but we're, we're not being allowed to listen to them in the language that they're actually speaking, and they're speaking this celestial language. Yeah, it's like when uh, on uh, Seinfeld, when Jerry was dating the deaf chick and um, Kramer signed or whatever, but he didn't know what he was doing. So he kept missing it up. And it, of course, hilarity ensues. But yeah, it's about that. Uh, I, I do like, though, that there's a, a common theme. Um, I, I think just personally here, just a bit behind the curtain is I've really been exploring extra to extra topics that really take me out of a sense of. A stable reality, I'll call it. Um, so it's very nice to know that there's a little bit of continuity here. It's nice to know that there's a little bit of something that we can kind of lean on in the form of mythology, in the form of the stars, um, in the form of just greater understandings that don't really change over time. They may be misappropriated, but really the truth is in there. And I think that natural law always abides by that. And you always gravitate towards the natural center, the real direction you should be going through. Now, a lot of times you got to walk through Hades to find it. And that's kind of the goal too, right? It's like you have to experience both in this place of duality uh, to get the results that you're here to see. So I, I think that what you're saying with this, where there there is a lot of truth in this, and I completely agree. And I love though the way that you pointed out your work is phenomenal. Again, guys, I'll link all the ways to find him down in the show notes. Go check out some of the stuff. Um, but the way that you're able to connect the dots on all of the different cultures and what they anthropomorphize, and it takes everything from such a scattered perspective of not being able to tie everything together. And that's what you do a wonderful job at, which makes it not only interesting but but beneficial, which is great, man. I mean, you're out there doing God's work, man, doing the God's <laughs> works. So it's cool. Hey, thanks so much for those kind words. And I, I totally agree that they are talking about profound truths in an infinite and invisible realm that they're using the stars, which when you look up to the stars, you're looking into an infinite realm, right? You're looking into a, a, an infinite distance uh, out there. Event, I mean, you're looking into an infinite realm. They're using an a visible aspect to teach us about an invisible realm that is real, that is real. And that is connected with this one, this physical realm at every single point, it's intertwined and interlaced and interwoven. And those two are uh, connected at all times. And we have elements of both uh, going on at all times, so tightly woven that they're not uh, separate. And, and it's very, very uh, powerful information that they're in and wisdom that they're preserving and trying to tell us they're standing there trying to tell us absolutely fascinating man um 
Okay, uh, I tell you what, we'll we'll probably wrap it up for this one only simply because I want to yep, have you. No, back. that's the end of you my presentation. Fascinating, that, this dude. Is, this well, is and great. I feel like we could do this forever. We could talk about all this stuff uh, forever, and I've I've really got to just kind of absorb this conversation and then get back to you uh, with more crazy, silly stuff. But I do want to end <laughs> on a uh, kind of silly question that changes the subject a little bit. Okay, you've mentioned Karate Kid a couple of times, which I love the analogy, and I'm completely there with you about relating information. I think it's wonderful. It's a great metaphor. So let me ask you a question specifically about the karate kid on his headband there was a little sun remember that yeah what yeah, color yeah. was it <laughs> oh man are you gonna tell me it wasn't what it wasn't red it's probably black it's probably black but only because i've i've taken screenshots of it okay no it. i haven't i've taken screenshots of it and put it into you know presentations and things do you remember it as being the color no, I remember it as being red. Yeah. Um, when you said that, I was immediately going to say red, but then I'm like, oh, I must be wrong. And I'm like, you know what? I think I actually have noticed that like in the back of my mind without really consciously noticing it. It's the Mandela So are you going to tell me, they, had... did they change it? Yeah, I've heard of that. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, every time, every time I do something stupid, it's the Mandela effect. Somebody <laughs> went back and changed it. <laughs> you know, I, like I didn't that. really do that. <laughs> I, I like that. No, uh, it's fascinating because the Karate Kid is one of those. It's it, it's a new one, actually, which is very interesting. I didn't interesting. actually think of that. I didn't actually know. I've never heard that so one. Technically, but I would certainly think that it's red. But is it black? It's black, isn't it? It's black now. I'll say that. It uh, used to be red because I'm from the same dimension as you. It's the whole CERN <laughs> uh, Mandela effect thing. And we won't launch into that. That, that one we'll save for next time. But uh, it's just interesting because you and I are from the same dimension. I remember it being red too, but now you look at it and it's black <laughs> and it's never been red, which is crazy. I Mandela. saw that in the movie theaters I, and I was pretty young. I saw it in the movie theaters. I was so young that uh, a lot of the kids we were on a swim team trip. A lot of the kids went to see Officer and a Gentleman was playing in the same movie theater. And I was like, my parents don't let me see our movies. I'm not going to go to that one. I'll go to see this other one, Karate Kid. And I loved it. I loved it. Changed my life. Yeah. Of course. Uh, so are you telling me it was red in the movie theater? And I'm, and now it's been changed. What I'm telling you is the idea goes that you are from a different timeline where it was red. So your memory is accurate. It's just in this timeline that you've transferred More recently, to. right. More recently, I've been taking screenshots. And, and you've probably noticed. Back, so of my it's mind, funny. back of my mind is kind of like noticed that, but I didn't really make the connection that maybe it was really red when I was in the theater. There is a okay. ton of them. I remember it being red, and millions of people do too, by the way. You're not on your own on this. This is not something we're manufacturing. It's just an observation about your reality. Uh, okay, and another one you'd mentioned, uh, Curious George. Does he have a tail or no tail? Oh, my goodness. I know. Oh, my goodness. I think Curious George probably has no tail, <laughs> but probably he used to have a tail. What? I don't know. You've nailed it. You got it. Uh, he used to have a tail, but does not anymore. David, I am so <laughs> impressed with you, dude. You are such a badass. Um Please come back anytime, and uh, I will, of course, uh, link all the ways to find you down in the show notes. Guys, check his work out. He's absolutely fascinating. Again, audio-only audience, check out the video for sure. You do an awesome job, and that visual representation, especially of the stars, and I'm going to go out and look for the new constellations now. Those were a few I hadn't even uh, put on my radar, but now that now they are. So thank you again, brother. You're fascinating, dude. Come back any damn time. You have an open invite. Hey, thanks for your kind words, Brandon. Those uh, insights and... and uh kind of sparks that you're throwing off are fantastic. This was a really fun conversation. And uh, those things at the end were also mind blowing. I'm not a, 
I'm not a subscriber to the Mandela effect yet, but uh, that's a that's a that's I have a pretty planted uh, the seed, and that's all that's you need. That's pretty compelling arguments yep. that you're putting up there. Hey, thanks a lot. I really hope your uh, your listeners enjoy it, and I know that your podcast is going to just keep growing. Thanks so much for having me over. Man, that was cool. David is just one of those dudes that you can talk to forever on this stuff and just keep going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of exploration of this. And we only skim the surface, guys. So I really hope that you enjoyed that. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, I thought it was very, very interesting and how the connection between you know myths and the stars and how it's all interconnected and uh the ancients knew this stuff and i i like the points to a an overarching uh worldwide system that people were pretty damn aware of so i think that there's uh definitely something to that and david does a wonderful job relaying that information so check the show notes for all the ways to find him uh also check the show notes for expandingrealitypodcast.com that's how you can expand your experience with us here on the show uh that's where all the socials are located as well as merch and rockfin and all that good stuff uh, the music that you are hearing right now is by good buddy of mine Vinny the saint he is linked down in the show notes as well y'all go check out some of his music because he does an awesome job and he's just a really good friend of mine very very cool dude so um, go out into this beautiful place uh, this week, guys, and y'all just pick up a piece of litter, of course. Uh, get out of the left-hand lane because that's a pain in the ass. Uh, be nice to everybody that you come across. Buy a meal or a coffee or something simple for someone in line or adjacent to you in some fashion. It makes a massive difference, and I know that you're going to feel it way more than that person does, which is incredible. It's unintentional, but it's it's definitely there. Just something to look out for. Uh, so uh, go out other than that. Uh big beyond anything else and y'all just be good to one another thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time